This episode is made possible by Armoire. I love genius companies founded by women, and Armoire is one of them. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days, and then when you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. To me, Armoire Armoire solves so many issues I struggle with today, the biggest one being accumulation of stuff. Let's face it, women want to feel on trend and fresh in their clothes, so we like to shop for new clothes often. But I also get overwhelmed when I have too much to choose from, which happens after years of shopping. I forget what clothes I have and I end up wearing the same thing over and over. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion and then send it back. Whether you're planning your outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to brave a department store fitting room with those unflattering fluorescent lights again. Trust me, your overly cramped closet and the environment will thank you. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash heel. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash heel to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Heal Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gores, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is what's possible for one is possible for all. On today's episode of The Heal Podcast, I get the tremendous pleasure of speaking to two daughters of one of my greatest teachers, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Sage Dyer and Serena Dyer Pisoni are here with me, and they have recently released a book called The Knowing, which talks about 11 lessons they've learned from their dad, even after his passing from his physical body and how they've had to rely on his teachings more than ever just to navigate the grief that they experienced when he passed suddenly in 2015. It is such a wonderful reminder of all of Wayne's teachings. And I think this book, The Knowing, that they have just come out with is a gift to anybody who's lost a loved one because they have so many fascinating stories of this real connection and all the signs that their father continues to give them on a daily basis. It's just so comforting and so hopeful. So there's so much to glean from this conversation. And it was such a thrill for me to just be reminded of his teachings and feel so close to that connection as well. This book is a gift and their spirit is a gift to the world as they continue their dad's message and teachings. So I hope you enjoy and let's dive in. Awesome. So Serena and Sage, thank you so much for coming on the Heal podcast. Thank Thank you you for having us. us. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so obviously I am so honored and excited to have you both on here because your dad was such a huge influence in my life. I'm sure you hear it all the time. What a tremendous impact he's had on so many people. And so, you know, you just came out with the book that you guys co-wrote called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. And basically what you've put into this book, what you've learned from your dad after his passing from this, you know, his physical body into the other phase, the next phase. (laughs) So do you want to kind of just tell us what spawned the book and, and how you guys came to write this book? Sure. Yeah. We actually, at first, were not writing a book together. We were writing, we were both writing separately. And um, after a little while, you know, we would talk and she would say, I've written this and I've written that. And and we realized that our writing actually really was complementing each other. So uh, we decided to combine it into one book and co-author it. And I think it came together really nicely, better than I thought it could have. And the book, I mean, for me, I'll say is basically, you know, I, I grew up with Wayne Dyer as my dad. My mother is also very spiritual, you know, but my life was very smooth and I didn't have a lot of, you know, it, it, it wasn't hard to apply the teachings of my dad when your life is smooth sailing, you know? So for the first time, we're sort of hitting these choppy waters and dealing with something that was so profound and so real, you know, losing my dad. I was 25 years old. It was unexpected to me. And, um, and so for the first time it was like, can we apply his teachings when it really matters? You know, it's, it's easy when it's easy. And, um, so it was going through that journey. It didn't, it didn't happen overnight. It still doesn't happen all the time, but it was, it's our reflection on how we grew up, what we learned from our dad and how we were able to apply it, relearn it in the present when life got, got harder. Yeah. I mean, I think that I had already written a book with him and the whole book that we had already written together was about the experience of growing up with spiritual parents. So we didn't want to do that again. Um, now that we were in this place where we were dealing with not only his death, but then so many other things that started taking place, it kind of felt like we were actually learning his message and applying his work to our lives for the first time. And it would have been so wonderful if he would have been here to be able to like hand us his lesson on a platter (laughs) or be one phone call away and kind of help us figure it out. But he wasn't. And so I think that was what was really eye-opening was like actually having to take his work and apply it without him here to help us understand it or to, to make it really easy or palatable. And I think anybody can relate to that, right? Because People don't always have a Wayne Dyer one phone call away. Um, maybe don't have a therapist or even a friend that's one phone call away to help them go through some of life's like biggest personal challenges. And we were really contemplating this idea of, is what you taught true? Is it real? And can we embrace it, it without yeah. you here? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I just think this book for anybody who's lost someone important to them, certainly a parent or God forbid a child, just everything that your, your dad is so connected. He was so connected to love. And he was, you guys say he's a master of love when he was in this physical form. And now he is still 
communicating with you guys from the other side. There's so many fascinating stories of connection, even after he's passed away in this book that I think anybody who's lost someone or grieving can really get a lot of healing and solace and peace from this book. Do you want to share what you've learned about death uh, through your father's passing? Yeah, I could say for me that one of the things that we wrote about, and it was something that he had said before, was that death is normal and natural, and it's something that we're all going to do. It's the way we view death. It's the way we approach death or think of it that really makes it tragic, because there's this belief that we our soul contained within our body, right? And when we don't have this body, then where's the soul? But it's really the other way around. It's really that your soul encompasses the body. And when your body is no longer here, the soul still is. And your your energy, your soul is still alive. It's still present. It's still active. It's still you. At least that's what I believe. And I think that's what we've come to know because the way our dad continues to show up, it's not just that it's, real and deeply meaningful. It's that it's funny. It's that it's him. It's that he still has humor and he still messes with us. And I know there are definitely people that will say, well, how do you know for sure? How do you know for sure? And the truth is that you don't. You don't ever know in terms of having scientific evidence, right? But you know in your soul, you know in your gut, you know in your experience, whether something feels so authentic to you that there's no doubt in your mind. And I would say that because we were raised to know that you believe it and then you see it, we've always seen it because we've always believed it. We've always seen the signs because we've always believed that they would be there. And there was never any doubt. So um, for people that have lost somebody and they'll say, well, I don't feel them or I don't get the signs or they don't communicate with me. I have a friend that was saying that. And, and what I said to her was, are you open to it? Like, are you actually open to it? And she kind of admitted that she wasn't, that she was open to it on paper, but she really didn't want to get any signs. She was so afraid. And it was only after a year of me talking to her about these things that she said for the first time ever, she started talking to her mom who had just passed or who had passed away when she was younger. And the next song that came on in the car on the radio was the song that her mom always sang to her. And she was like, is that a sign? And I was like, <laughs> yes, it's a sign. <laughs> oh my God. You can't, yeah. you can't have an attachment or an expectation to how the sign is going to come. You know, like I know earlier we shared a picture with you over text and the picture we showed was from when we did a paddle out ceremony for our dad in Maui with just our family. And we paddled out on surfboards and we put some of his ashes in the ocean And I was really expecting like dolphins to start jumping or turtles to (laughs) approach us or like rainbows. Rainbows. (laughs) Not only was I expecting that, but I really thought that the sign from him would have to come in the way I wanted it to come, which would be a real undeniable, without a doubt, miracle. And then later when we got the photos that my husband had taken of us when we were out there and we could see a face in the water, it's like, you know, there's a choice there. We can either view it as, well, it's not what I wanted. It's not the sign that uh, I was looking for. So it's nothing. It's just a glitch in the, in the photo or in the camera or something, or, oh my God, there's a face in the photo that was taken while we were paddling out to put ashes out there. And we're asking for a sign. It's him. It's a sign. So anyway, I think um, if you want to see it, if you want to experience your loved one from the other side, you have to believe it first. 
Yeah. And, and for me, I would say that, you know, uh, growing up around my dad's teachings and my mom, who's very spiritual, I was a believer, but I was also sort of skeptical a lot. <laughs> and so after my dad passed away, I, I felt like I was, well, I was skeptical, but it also just didn't apply to me. I should say, you know, I had never lost anybody. So you don't know how you're going to feel react until you do. But after my dad passed away, I, I sort of felt like I was at, like I was at a crossroads, you know, I could either view this as, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to me and feel bad for myself and, and view it as, you know, think about all the never agains that I'll never speak to him again. It's over. My relationship with my dad ended on August 30th, 2015, or I could choose to embrace what I had been raised around, what I always was hearing my parents talk about that. I was like, but do you really, you know, like did, <laughs> did grandma really show up at your, at your uh, bedside last night, you know, and things like that. And, um, and I, so, and I felt like I, I had a choice and it, for me, it wasn't so much like without a doubt, it was, it was a choice. And as I made the choice to believe that my, my relationship with my father just shifted to take on a different meaning and a different, uh, way that, you know, it's, it's energetic now it's, it's not physical. It's beyond the five senses. You have to believe, you have to know. And it was, um, as I made that choice, I experienced him more and more, which made it easier to make that choice. And I, and I would remind myself of things my dad said too. Like I had just been traveling with him on a tour through Australia and New Zealand the three weeks before he passed away. And so I heard him speak so many times over the course of those three weeks. And I remembered him saying to somebody who had just lost their best friend, his words to her were, you know, we all come here with a round trip ticket. We celebrate the birth. We celebrate it so much. We continue to celebrate it for our whole lives. It marks this beautiful new beginning of life. But then we tend to live our lives in fear of the, of the return, either for ourselves, for our loved ones, you know, and, and, and we think of it as this like final ending, but if you can just shift that around and recognize that we all have a, a return, we're all going to return, you know, so it's nothing really to fear because everybody that ever came here has done it. Everybody that ever will come will do it. And that his knowing was that it was a return to love, a return to a greater love than we're even capable of experiencing in this plane. And so just embracing that idea, you know, shifting my perspective on death. It's not it's not I'll never talk to dad again. It's okay. I can't dial him on my cell phone, but I can speak to him in my mind and I can feel him and I can choose to feel him around me. And I can laugh at the jokes that I hear him saying in my head. And, you know, so it was a choice for me. And that's so empowering. I think, you know, when you are looking for some sort of freedom from suffering, from grief, from sadness, from anger at the circumstances of your life and your dad talked about this a lot. It is a choice. You can choose peace instead of this that you're feeling. You can always choose peace. Yeah. And the, the one thing I want to say about this is that somebody had said to Sage recently when she did a um, she did an interview with the president of our publishing house. And somebody said to her, um, it's really easy for you to talk about embracing his passing. Well, she said um, it nicer than that. She said it was a nice <laughs> right, right. She said it nicely. <laughs> But it was, yeah. it was, the message was, it's easier to embrace the passing of somebody who has lived a real life and who was 75 years old and 
um, didn't suffer in the end or went quickly, that there's circumstances that make that easier. And when Sage was sharing that with me, I said to her, you know, because I lost my stepson and my husband who raised his son as a single parent for my stepson's entire life. Okay. So that was his only child for the longest period of time. And he died at the age of 19 from an accidental drug overdose. So he was our child or my husband's child, my stepson, and he died of something that was an accident. So that's all of the things that you need to be able to say that this is tragic, accidental, and he didn't get to fulfill his, his life, his dharma. But we were not raised to believe that. And because I talked about that so much with my husband, when I lost my father, when his son passed away, he was reminding me of that. He was the one who was saying to me, we have a choice here and we can look at it as though Mason fulfilled what he came here to fulfill and only needed 19 years to do so. And if he was born at the right time, he left at the right time. And he would say to me, connect with him through the place of love. That is how he can give you the signs. Because those were all the things I felt and I talked about when I lost my dad. But losing a child, I had a different experience with grief. And most of my experience with it was relating to guilt, shame, fear, profound sadness and loss but he was right. And it was only when I started to do that, when I started to think of him in the place of love and not in the place of shame, guilt, or fear, I really did start to have Mason give me the signs and all of that. And now it's like, we have three little kids and they talk about Mason and grandpa as though they see them on a regular basis because they're so alive for us in our home. And, and that was a choice. That was a conscious choice to make viewing Mason's death as divinely on purpose. Because if you live in a universe where there are no accidents, then there's his no death exception. could not have been. Yeah, yeah. there's no exception, even in the death of somebody that is so young and had potentially, you know, we want to say so much longer to live, but his soul, his soul knew that he didn't. He, he finished what he came here to finish and he left when he was supposed to leave. Yeah. And he's now swimming in this blissful love that surpasses all of our human understanding, you know, he's in a much better place. Yeah. It's cliche, but he, he's home and he's with your dad. Yeah. And we're all going to be there one day. When I replied to this uh, woman's email, I said, you know, I, I completely agree that it is an, an acknowledge, and I'm sorry if I didn't make it clear in, in the podcast that I did, but I completely acknowledge that it is infinitely harder to come to terms with it when it is out of the natural order of things, a child, a young person, you know, on and on, but that the choice still in the end remains the same because you can choose to see it as on purpose and divine, like Serena was just saying, and that choice will lead to peace and, and then, and to signs and to experiencing your loved one, or you can choose to fight it and, and, think about all the never agains and all the fear and just spend your life in agony over this, which I, of course you're going to have the agony anyway, but at a certain point you can choose the other way. And if you don't, you're going to be just brought to more and more disarray, unrest, you know, the opposite of peace. You're, you're not, and you're not going to experience them. So I just think it still comes down to the choice. It's so much harder of a choice to, to follow and to fulfill and to stay on course with, but you know, I do think it is still a choice. And that's what I tried yeah, to say to her. In any situation, 
when you are faced with deciding how you're going to look at something, you have to ask yourself, which one brings you closer to God? And do you feel good when you think of life as just ends the moment your heart stops beating? Does that bring you comfort and peace? Does that bring you closer to God? Or do you feel good when you think about the idea or the knowing that we have that the soul goes on to experience far more than we can pick up on right now when we're limited to this body? It's like, which one brings you closer to where you want to be and to how you want to feel? Pick that one. We don't know for sure either one is real. So just pick the one that makes you feel good. Because why would you choose to fill your mind with things that take you away from peace? I can't imagine. And, and your dad, you know, I think you write about this in the book where he says, you know, you have a choice, you can stay in grief, but I always encourage people to get over it sooner. Yeah, no, it actually, that was uh, something I wrote about because, um, I remember I was in the shower and I, it was a few days after my dad had uh, recently passed away and I was still very much in the grief of it and very stuck and overwhelmed with emotion. And I, and when I would find myself in those overwhelmed moments, those overwhelming moments, I would have this instinct call dad, you know, and then I would say to myself, you're never going to do that again. And then the grief would just it would hit you again, you know, all the never agains, all the should haves, all the, if only, you know, I had just been with him 48 hours before, if only this heart attack had happened in Australia where he insisted we had conjoined rooms. So we would have been in the same room, you know, I, something could have been done, but, uh, so I kept doing that. And, and then there was this time in the shower where it happened again, I thought called dad, And then I said, I'm never going to do that again. And the, the grief came over me and I said, okay, Sage, you can't keep doing this to yourself. It's torture. You know, you're torturing yourself. You've got to find a better way to think about this. And, and so I said, okay, I don't have my dad here to call. However, I have a lifetime of knowing him and knowing and, and hearing his wisdom and hearing him talk to other people who were struggling or, or suffering. And so I said, what would dad say to me now? What, you know, what, what would he say to me? And what sort of came to me, which to me at the time felt very out of nowhere, I didn't feel in any place to have profound thoughts, you know, and it was this idea that I can make this the worst thing that ever happened to me, or that I can, I can choose to see it as an opportunity to grow and to get closer to him, to get closer to faith, to believing, to knowing that he's still with me. And then I I could hear it in his voice, him telling me, remember the choose sooner story. And the Choose Sooner story is, it's a story about a man who was, uh, who his son was at war in battle. And he got a knock on his door one day. Um, and it was somebody there to tell him that his son had died in battle. And that night, the man went into the town and he went dancing at a party. And there was a woman there and they were, all the neighbors were talking saying, you know, what's going on? Everybody knew what had happened. So a woman went up to him and said, I don't understand. You just learned that your son passed away just this morning. How could you be out here dancing? And his answer was sooner or later, I'm going to have to move on from this or it will kill me. It will be the end of me. And I'm just choosing sooner. And I remembered that story and I thought, you know, I can choose sooner. There's no 
set amount of time that I have to grieve through this or that I have to be sad or stuck. You know, I, it's okay to be happy too. And that's not to say that grieving and feeling the sadness and having those emotions, that's completely healthy and normal. And you should do that. But it's also okay to have times and big times, you know, whole days, weeks, whatever it is for you, that you feel happy. And that's okay. It's okay to choose sooner. There's no set, there's no schedule that you have to, because for me, I, I had school starting in a few days. I was in graduate school and it was start, the semester was starting just a few days later. And I thought, I was like, should I even go? I felt like I could, but then I was like, well, people judge me for you know, just moving on so quickly, going to school three days later. I mean, it just felt too soon. And I did take two weeks off, but ultimately I went back and, and it was the right choice for me. And, and remembering that sort of gave me permission. Like, no, I don't have to be stuck. I don't have to stay. I I can choose and it will be okay. I can, I can be moving on and also still grieving and and it's all perfect. So I remember, and it's, and it applies to anything too. You lose your job. You can choose to be okay with it sooner. You know? I love that so much. I feel like that can, yes, (laughs) apply to anything. And I think, you know, unless I imagined it, didn't your dad somehow tell you that he can connect with you better if you're in the playful, fun energy that he is over on the other side, which makes total, it resonated so deeply with me because, you know, usually when people are grieving, they're just like so angry that this person left, you know, or was taken from them too early and they're sad and they're grieving, which is again, totally natural. But then these connections come, uh, if you can understand that the connection comes when you're in that loving, joyful, playful, you know, kingdom of heaven. And as a child, that's when the people on the other side can more easily connect with you. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So that was um, something that uh, he had sent us a DVD um, and it was the Christmas before he passed away. So it was uh, like eight months, nine months before he passed away. And he had sent each of us a DVD of him speaking with Esther Hicks, who channels Abraham. And he said, if you want any money from me for Christmas, watch this (laughs) and send back to me a letter of what, what impacted you the most. So each of us obviously did that because we wanted some you know, Christmas money. And, um, and I remember when I watched the DVD, I remember the part that stuck out to me the most, what I wrote my letter to him about was Esther Hicks describing how, um, when she lost her husband, how as, as a medium, as a channel channelist, really, um, she wasn't able to connect with him and she couldn't find him. She couldn't feel her husband's energy, which was particularly alarming for her because she's gifted in that way. And um, it was through a series of events that took place where she was basically reminded that she had this, she was in grief, but she was also in fear, a fear because she couldn't find him and she couldn't feel him. And she had this really low energy that she was like, I guess, vibrating at. And it was a energy of fear. And she was reminded somehow, I think it was through Abraham who she channels. She was reminded that in in order to bring in anything into your life, you have to be in alignment with it in order to experience it. And that where Jerry, her husband was now, was in the energy of just love and joy and peace and all of the high, high frequency energies that we know exist. And she was reminded by her spirit guides, essentially, that in order to feel him, in order to communicate with him, 
she needed to bring herself up to where he was. And then she could, then she would get the messages and she did. And she was able to find him immediately. So I wrote this letter to my dad about that. And, um, and the day he died, I remember when I finally got home and I was alone for the first time after getting the call and being on the phone when, um, his assistant D found him and just really traumatic. And then having to call Sage and just so much at once. It's so much in one day. I hadn't even cried yet. I was still in this place where I was like negotiating somehow with God that this wasn't real and this didn't actually happen. Um, I definitely was not processing it. When I got home and I was alone, I remember the, the thing that just kept going through my mind was, I can't believe you pulled it off which seems like a really weird thing to think. But for me, it was because, and Sage could tell you as well, he always talked about death as though it was something that um, he looked forward to, as something to celebrate. In fact, I know that you know Anita, and Anita Morjani was asked a question in Maui at a conference um, that she was doing with my dad, and I was in the audience, and somebody asked her, you know, my mom didn't win the battle with cancer. She fought really hard, but she lost in the end. And that it was really hard for the daughter to find any peace in that because the mother really wanted to live. She really wanted to fight and she did, but she still lost the battle in the end. And Anita said, your mother didn't lose anything. It's just the way you're looking at it that makes you think that she lost something. But what she gained, where she is, as humans, we don't have the experience or the knowledge to know how good it is, how great it feels. But now that your mother's there, Anita said, I envy her. I want to be there. It's so beautiful. And I remember thinking that and having this feeling of, I can't believe you finally did it. You know, I was like mad, like you asshole, you actually <laughs> died and left us behind. <laughs> but I thought about the Esther thing and I started to laugh. And, um, and then I got a really cool sign from him that I talk about in the book. And, and that was really the beginning, I think, for me that I had this knowing that I had to, um, I, had to I had to stay connected to my high-flying disc, as Esther Hicks calls it, in order to find him or feel him. And, and when I would do that, which it was not all the time, but when I would, it would happen. Yeah. And I, I feel like you're just to add a little bit to that. I don't have a whole long thing, but our dad used to talk about too. It's like energetically, you talked about this in your documentary heal as well. Energetically, when particles are come together to form something solid, they have to be slowed way down to come into, you know, the form, the human form, solid form, a book, whatever it is. But when, when particles are, are loose and out in the atmosphere, they're spinning so much faster you know, so our dad used to talk about how he, when you, when you leave the physical, you're no longer limited by these physical bodies because really they are so limited. I mean, we've got five senses. We perceive our whole experience through them, <laughs> but we know there's so much more out there than that. I mean, just at this very moment, there's AM and FM radio waves coursing through the room that I'm sitting in and I'm not a radio. So I can't feel them. <laughs> I don't have an antenna. You know, I think I'm sitting still, but in reality, we're sitting on a planet that's rotating and hurling through space and multiple different axes and on and on. So, you know, we know that these bodies, they deceive us. And when we leave them, I think we really can know that for the first time without questioning it. And 
yeah, I mean, like Serena said, our dad constantly talked about how it's just the next great adventure. It's the next phase. Our mom too, she still talks. I get mad at her, but I'm <laughs> like, don't talk. You're not going anywhere. Okay. But, but she talks about how, you know, she looks forward to that one day and she looks forward to messing with us and giving us signs like, like how our dad does constantly that we're always group texting about what happened today. And yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anita Morjani, quick story. I went to that writer's workshop on Maui in January of 2015 with Anita Uh and, and your dad with the intention of connecting with them. So they would both be in heel because I ended up starting heel the very next January. And so at the end of the conference or whatever, we could all go up on stage and take a picture with your dad. And, And so my partner that was with me, she was a producer on the film. And she said, just write a letter to Wayne real quick, just like to, you know, express your feelings and and your desire for him to be in your film. So I was like, what? Ah." So I just like (laughs) free wrote this whole letter and I wrote my phone number at the bottom and I I gave it to him. But it was all about the desire for him to be in the film because he was, you know, one of my greatest teachers and connected with Anita as well. And she ended up being in the film, but he called me the next morning and I still remember where I was. It was like 10 a.m. and I was at the Four Seasons in Maui and I didn't answer the call because it said no caller ID. And so <laughs> I was like, no. Um, and he just left a very lovely message and no return phone number, but I still have the, the message on my voicemail because <laughs> it was just such a <laughs> moving thing. So I like to think, you know, he knew just like all of the, the stories that you account, he knew he was entering his next phase and probably knew he wasn't going to be he in the film, have, but it was just such a beautiful, anyway. yeah. He would have loved your documentary though. I mean, that's right up. That's how we were raised by both of our parents to view health, our bodies, you know, it's, it's energy more than anything. Yeah. Um, so he, he would have loved yeah. it and loved being a part of it as well. Cause he had a profound healing that we could share if you'd like. Exactly. Yeah, well, and and I, he's, yeah. Oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say that last thing about Anita Morjani, you know, for those of you who don't know her story, or I talk about it a little bit in Heal, but she had the near-death experience, which your dad kind of discovered, Anita, and that story, because it was so profound. Her body physically was as far gone as a human body could be. Her organs were shutting down, lemon-sized tumors coming through her skin from her neck to her abdomen. Just no way that anyone would look at her physical body and say that it could recover. It was as late-stage cancer as you can get. And she had this she went to the other side, the other, the next phase mm-hmm. and had this beautiful encounter with her father who they had this tumultuous relationship with. She, she experienced that unconditional blissful love, which is, you know, where we, the next phase. And so she was able to shift her consciousness, lose all fear of death. And like you said, it's an envy. She's envious of anyone who crosses over because she knows what's waiting for us. And mm-hmm that love, that shift in consciousness, she came back into her body and her whole physical body healed with that new consciousness vibration frequency of love that is beyond, you know, any human definition in words. Uh, Just your dad embodied love on this, on this planet. And then, you know, that's why he looked forward. He knew where he was headed, but we talk about and heal, like love is truly the highest frequency. It's the greatest healer. And I want to talk about his healing story, but Sage, when you were six, 
if you could just share yeah. the bumps story, because yeah. <laughs> I, kids, kids are connected to that other side. They're right. so connected with the imagination. It's so powerful. And, and the kids, in, you know, are perfect examples of how, if you believe and you use your imagination and you use love, you can heal. So right. tell us the yeah. before Sage, before Sage starts, I just want to say before we came on this, Sage said, do you think, because I think I should bring up my bump story because it really fits in with heel. And I was yeah, like, well, yeah. I watched your documentary you last said. night. And I was like, this is exactly what I experienced, you know, as a child. And then I would say, like you said, children are more connected. No doubt. I was more connected than, than I am now. It takes more effort now to connect to that kind of place, but yeah, I'll, I'll share it. I'll try and make it uh, brief. I, when I was about five years old, I developed a rash on my face of bumps and, um, my parents, you know, after they were never too worried about medical things. They didn't panic, take us to the doctor and put us on antibiotics or anything like that. But after a few weeks, they weren't going away. So my parents took me to the doctor and they told me that these bumps were flat warts and what they told my parents and that, that they should go away on their own and that they're pretty common in kids and they're not dangerous. And the, they, I, I made my parents promise they wouldn't tell my siblings that I had warts on my face because I knew what that would do. So that's why they were called my bumps. So we went home from that appointment. I forgot about it, whatever. A lot of time goes by like over a year and they are still not gone and they're in fact getting worse. So uh, my parents took me back to another doctor and they said, you know, we really should treat these. If they go on this long, you should, you should treat them with drugs. Or they said that there's a medication you can take and it uh, may or may not work. It's going to make you peel. It's going to make you red. You have to stay out of the sun and had all these side effects and on and on. Um, and I was my, I was like, I don't want to do that. My parents allowed us to have a say in our bodies from a young age. And um, for me, it was, I don't want to stay out of the sun. I mean, you know, I loved playing outside. So then they said, you have the other option would be, you can burn them off, like freeze dry them off. And, um, but the doctor said it's going to, could leave scarring. It could be painful. It is going to be painful. There's going to be scabs, you know, on and on. And I heard that and I was like, no way we're, are we burning these things off? They didn't even bother me. I was six. I didn't look in the mirror. You know, uh, the only thing I remember about them is when I would touch my face, it wouldn't be smooth. So my parents said, okay, you know what? We'll give it a little more time. We're not going to make her do either of these things. Another year or even more goes by and they're still there. They're still spreading. They were close to my eyes at this point. It was obvious when you looked at me because my skin would tan, but they wouldn't. So it, you know, it was like time to do something. So my parents took me to a dermatologist in Hawaii when we were out there. And he, uh, basically said the same thing the other doctor did. He said, these are your two treatment options and we should really do one of them. My parents then said, you know what, can we talk to you outside? And they stepped outside with the doctor and then they came back in the room and they said to me, okay, we've, we've spoken to the doctor and we have come up with a third option for you because I still didn't want to take medicine, had all these side effects or freeze them off, you know? And they said, um, your third option would be to talk to your bumps and to heal yourself of this. You can spend time every night talking to your bumps and, and you can heal yourself. You have that power within you. And I said, great, I'm going with that option. <laughs> Sounds like the best one. <laughs> so we went home uh, and that night uh, when I got into bed, I pulled the covers over my head and I 
talked to my bumps for about five minutes before I fell asleep. Nobody told me what to say. Nobody told me, you know, what time of day to do it. They just said, consistently talk to your bumps. And um, I did that for three nights. On the fourth night, I got in bed to talk to my bumps. And I reached up and I touched my face. And I was so used to having a bumpy complexion. And I couldn't believe it was completely smooth. I couldn't find a single one. I was like, so I ran out of my bed and I ran into my parents' bedroom. And I was like, they're gone. They're gone. And they were like, what's gone? What are you talking about? And I was like, my bumps, they're gone. And I remember my dad pulled me up close and he was like, oh my God, Marcy, put your glasses on, they're gone. <laughs> and, you know, and they, they were like, we can't find a single one. And then my dad was like, what did you say to them? <laughs> and I said, uh, it's a secret. <laughs> and he started to tickle me and, um, tell me that this was material for his work and that I needed to tell him what I said because that this was a miracle. You know, for almost three years, I had these bumps and now in three days, they were gone without a trace. And um, he he continued to bribe me. He gave me, he was like, I'll give you $20. We can go get ice cream. Like, come on, you got (laughs) to tell me what you said. And I wouldn't tell him. But about 10 years later, when I was 18, we were talking about it again. He continued to ask over the years. I even wrote it for an essay in school, but I ended the essay with, and I don't tell anybody what I said to my bumps, you know? (laughs) And, um, And he included that in his book, Spiritual Solution to Every Problem. But so when I was like 18, I was like, you know, I'll tell you what I said to my bumps. I don't know why I've kept it a secret so long. I think I just liked the attention I was getting. And, um, I told him that what I said to my bumps was I very simply told them that I loved them and I appreciated them, but that we couldn't be together anymore and that they had to leave. And I just, I continued to send them love. I did it it all. It was in a child's voice. It was, you know, my eight-year-old little voice, but it was all done with love and compassion. It wasn't threatening. It wasn't, I'm going to burn you off if you don't leave within a week, you know? And, um, my dad was really taken back by that. And he right then on the spot called the dermatologist because the dermatologist could not believe when my dad called him that they were gone. And he also wanted to know what I said. So on the spot, he called him because they were friends and, um, he started to cry and he said, I'm just so moved because I would have pictured that she would have waged war against them and threatened them, but she did it with love and they, and it, and her body, my body just responded so quickly. Looking back as an adult, I think that it was because not only did I do it with love, like you talked about, but I also did it without doubt. You know, at that age, my parents telling me that I could heal my body was enough of a reason for me to believe wholeheartedly that I could. And so I went into it with a knowing that this was going to work. You know, this will be the last doctor I have to see about this. This will be the end of bumpy skin. And yeah, I mean, so I I try to remember that. I wrote about it in the book and I try to remember it now because it it is different as an adult for sure. Right. The kids just buy into, especially what your parent, the authority in your life, you think your parent at that age knows everything. So if they give you the, you know, agency and and say, you have the power to heal, you're going to be like, oh, of course I do. And then you just go do it. And I just, I think it's such a beautiful story because, you know, in Western medicine, we tend to fight. We tend to wage war on cancer or 
you know, anything else in our body. We now have this new epidemic of autoimmune where our bodies are attacking itself. We even use the word attacking itself. Right, and battling cancer. I mean, and, when don't you yeah, do that? And fuck cancer. And, and it's just right. this anger. And again, it's in that energy of resistance to what is when I've heard so many stories of spontaneous healing and radical remission when you realize cancer is just us, you know, your human cells that have gone AWOL. They've got, you know, they've been isolated. They've kind of gotten mentally ill, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they need love. They need, they need to be held as well. And so that energy, if you can switch and love and, and, and say, thank you, look, I don't have all the answers. It's not guaranteed, you know, that it's going to work every time, but it is an approach that has worked so many times when you just really embrace and approach it from love and acceptance rather than fighting and resistance. Well, and I think also to just say on top of that, it's also the faith because what Sage was saying, I think is so true. She had complete and total faith because our parents were the ultimate authority. And so if they said you could heal yourself and our parents had demonstrated by the way they lived their lives that um, they believed in that kind of thing. So this wasn't coming out of left field, right? To have, to be told that, you know, you had the power right. to create or do or achieve or manifest anything you wanted in your life. That was something that we heard all the time. So when she was told this, this didn't um, contradict anything, right? She had to Yeah, it was like, faith. oh, normal. You know, yeah. I can talk yeah. to my bumps. So why didn't I think of that? Of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's a good reminder because now as adults, you've, you know, less and less think your parents know everything. And then you turn to someone that's trained in, you know, the dermatologist, for instance, or the medical doctor, they are the new authority because you're going to them because they were trained in that specialty. So you think mm -hmm. they know more than you, you give your power away from, to them. And if their outlook, if their enthusiasm about the outcome of your disease is not very positive, it's so easy for us as humans to buy into that truth and believe it. And then it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy, which we call the nocebo effect. But equally, if doctors are aware of the power of their words, they could skew it towards hope, not false hope, totally. but right. towards the positive end of the statistic spectrum, you know, and people well, can then buy in and believe that. Well, what, yeah. And one of the things that we heard our dad say often was that it's not the disease that kills people. It's the diagnosis of the disease. And that it was something that he learned through Deepak Chopra, who had a friend who was a medical doctor and found out that he had a certain type of cancer. I'm sorry. He had a certain type of a mass in his lungs. Yeah. And as soon as he found this out, he got very sick and he died within like three months. This was one of Deepak's closest friends when he was younger. He died from um, what he believed was this advanced stage mass in his lungs. But when his, when the man who died, when his wife was going through his personal effects and saw the file that he had had of a physical for when he joined the army 20 years before, 30 years before, and there was a note in there about the exact same mass. So he had had the exact same mass for 30 years. And it was when, and it was something that Deepak learned from experiencing that whole situation that it wasn't the mass, it wasn't the disease that took his friend. It was the beliefs that he had, particularly being a medical doctor, he knew what kind of damage that type of you know mass could do to somebody and he fought it. 
and he died because of the diagnosis. And it wasn't, you know, and I think that that's so important to remember when it's like in any situation, I'm not saying the diagnosis is wrong, but it's what we think about the information that we're told and then how we bring it into our bodies and how we like marinate in that. We just create more of what it is we don't want. And Sage healed herself with love. I mean, couldn't we heal anything with love then? It's like, yeah. Well, our dad essentially healed himself uh, through the power of love as well. I mean, he was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, what he was like 70. Yeah. I think like, yeah, I think like 70. Yeah. Like five years before he passed away, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And at first he did sort of buy into the fear of it and he was going to the doctors and he was nervous. And because the type of leukemia he had wasn't a death sentence, but if it turns into this other type of leukemia, it becomes acute his was chronic mm-hmm. then then it can it would mean death it would mean chemotherapy or the end of your life and he was also he he was upset he was buying into the whole thing that that this was really bad and that and he also was upset because he thought did i create this because he believes in that and we were raised to believe in that ultimately though he came back to his faith his teachings and and started to look for alternative treatment methods and on and on. And eventually he was led to um, John of God in Brazil, who has had a lot of controversy since then, but he had a, a remote healing with John of God. And it was all about the power of love. And it was a, you know, it was a session that took place in the middle of night. And, you know, it's a very long story and we could give you all the details. To me, it doesn't matter who did this remote healing. It, what matters is that my dad our our dad believed so much that it worked, you know, he, mm-hmm. because he had side effects and he was exhausted. They, they told him he was going to have to rest for in bed for a week. And he thought rest in bed for a week. I don't rest in bed for a day, but I'll tell you, I'm going to do that. But he was so exhausted after this invisible surgery that he had, um, that he, ha- he didn't, couldn't get out of bed. Serena was there. She could tell you even more, but, um, he had so many miracles take place in that week. And then he, believed that it worked and that he was healed and he no longer went to doctors and got blood tests he just went on with his life knowing that he had been healed of this leukemia when he died they obviously did an autopsy um because he was alone and all of that and there was not a trace of this leukemia in his body and it was supposedly a diagnosis that you never get rid of you just live right you change your diet and lifestyle chronic lymphocytic leukemia CLL that was the type that he had and it was one that you just had and you just lived with but when you said the thing about the placebo or nocebo our dad used to say that he loved placebos because why wouldn't you take a placebo I mean you can take a sugar pill and it's going to do the same thing to you as the medication is going to do because you believe it like that's a that's a miracle that's amazing yeah and actually he was in a college course where they did an experiment and he wa- he witnessed this with his own eyes and it, he said it really changed the trajectory of his where he wanted to take his education because it was an experiment where they took a, a needle like a sewing needle and they made it freezing cold but they told the person that they were making it burning hot and, and they, they were put, blindfolded they were blindfolded so the, it was really just a freezing cold needle and they put if they told the person that it was burning hot, that they had just put it in fire and they put it on their skin, the person's skin formed a blister as if they were burned. But you don't form blisters from freezing hot metal You or freezing cold metal. You would only form a blister from freezing hot metal. 
<laughs> from hot metal. burning hot yeah, yeah. <laughs> burning hot metal sorry i'm nine months pregnant so <laughs> those things happen so the placebo effect he witnessed it with his own eyes watching people form blisters from something that was cold which doesn't even medically make sense and he said it just impacted him so much to see that it was the power of the mind i mean what they thought yeah. about what was touching their skin and i had an experience that i've talked about before we didn't put it in the book because it was in the other book but um, I had an experience where I went to law school and um, I was at law school and I developed pneumonia and I got really sick. I had to miss a full week of school. And in law school, if you miss a full week, that's like, you're not going to catch up or it's just, it's just bad to miss a whole week of school. And um, I remember him calling me and him saying, Serena, you're going to a place every day that you don't like, and you're only sticking it out and staying in law school because you're afraid of how you're going to look when, um, if you quit, you're afraid of what other people might think of you if you leave. And you're in a state of dis-ease. You are not at ease. Your soul is not in alignment. So what are you doing there? Leave. You're getting sick. You're bringing in illness because you're aligning with dis-ease because that is what you are doing with your life right now. Doing something that doesn't resonate with your soul out of the fear of what other people will think if you don't do it. And I remember thinking, so you won't be mad if I quit law school? And he said, no, I wouldn't be mad. I would be proud of you. I would be proud of you because you know it's not right for you. And he was right. I wanted to quit. I was in a master's program that I loved and that I was really excited about. But the law school, I, it didn't resonate with me. I did not want to do paperwork and I didn't want to be a lawyer. But I went because I was afraid that I wasn't going to have his financial support if I stopped going to school. And, and I thought a lawyer would be a great career or something. But that was the kind of parenting that he that he offered us as his children and my mom too. It was like to look at what is showing up in your life and ask yourself how you're in alignment with that. And is it what you really want? Is it really what you came here to do? Or are you sticking with it because you're coming from your, your lower self, your ego, which is saying you are what you have and what other people think and how you look, all which are things that have nothing to do with who you are as a, as a soul having this human experience. And he would say, follow what excites your soul, what you are enthusiastic about. Because when you're enthusiastic, I mean, the very word itself in Greek translates to entheosiasm, which is the God within. When you are excited, go with that. And I remember saying, I, everybody says that, dad, follow your passion. And that's just advice that older people give to young people who don't know what, what they want to do with their lives. Like, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And he said, do you know how you want to feel? And I thought, of course I know how I want to feel. I want to feel content. I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel at peace. I want to feel the excitement that you're talking about. And he said, so start contemplating that. Start bringing into your body those feelings. If you don't know what those things feel like, assume the feeling of them. Because when you do, you create that energy and you have experiences and opportunities that you become in alignment with just by assuming the feeling and bringing it into your imagination. And I started doing that. And, um, and I remember I said to him, okay, I know, I know what I want to do. I want to tell stories. So I need you to write a book with me and I need you to put your name on it so people will buy it. <laughs> and of course, you know, he laughed like, of course, somehow what you want to do involves me and I have to do all the work now. But 
but it, I mean, it was just such a, an amazing thing to have parents that, that raised us to be that way. And, and so as, as you know, because you've read the book, I mean, uh, reflecting on that, especially now that we're adults and that we are mothers as well. It's like, wow, it was so incredible to have that and to be raised with that. And man, I really did not know how, how wonderful it was. Um, but I absolutely know that he is right here right now saying, A, C, told you I was the best dad ever, but B, <laughs> and you can create that for yourself and you can continue that for yourself because he could not have applied his lessons to me. I had to create them for myself. I had to experience these things for myself, just like we all do. So if you didn't have these great parents, you still have to find it for yourself, just like I do. And yeah, I, think I think that that's... I, I, that's one of the things that I loved. You guys are so open and vulnerable and you, you know, you talk about struggles and, and hardships, you know, because we make this assumption in life that the grass is always greener. You know, everybody has some sort of trauma in childhood. And, and then you read about your parents who your mom, you know, had eight natural childbirths. She's an <laughs> avid meditator. She's just this, you know, she's, there's so many beautiful stories of how she showed up for her kids. Her dharma was to be a mother. And, you know, then your dad is your dad. So he's like one of the biggest teachers on love and forgiveness and, and you know, manifesting and intention. And you guys still have to go through your own human struggles and soul's evolution. And I think you mentioned one of your siblings had a substance abuse problem, you know, and I, I look around in my circles and I see wonderful parents who have all the resources in the world. And, you know, a kid has to go down that path of drug abuse and, you know, and it's just such a mystery to me. So can you guys speak to maybe that a little bit? And, and yeah, and, um, you know, look, there's a conference on Maui every year um, for dermatologists, and you would be hard pressed to find one dermatologist at that conference that did not have a sunburn. So it's like sometimes we can be great teachers, but we still have to apply everything for ourselves, right? And I think about that with my dad. We had a great example in terms of how to how to approach life, but he couldn't he couldn't do the do the living for us. So I actually have recently kind of come to terms with the fact that I totally became an alcoholic after I lost my father and then my stepson. And, um, and I, I was trying to not feel whatever it was that I was feeling. And I wanted to escape from the circumstances that had become part of my life. And I really believed that once I had all these things figured out and I had all these things fixed, then I would be at peace. Then I would be okay. But I was raised, I was literally raised to know that I have to have peace. I have to find the peace within me, my own inner Tahiti, or I say inner Maui, because Maui is my favorite place. I have to go there and live from that place and then everything will fall into place. But just because I was raised hearing that and knowing that doesn't mean that, boom, like a, I just, you know, had a magic I could swallow and just have it all apply to me. It's like, we still have to go through our own experiences. And sometimes it doesn't matter how many times you hear something or how many different ways you're told something until you are in alignment with the message, you're not going to get it. It doesn't matter who says it to you or how they say it to you. You have to be a match to it in order to get it. 
at least that has been my experience. And now I can say I absolutely was struggling with alcohol and uh, just addiction issues. And that could have been the case with or without having my dad alive or not. That it was just the experience that I needed to have for my own personal growth. And now I can say I'm not ashamed of it, which is why I talk about it. I'm grateful for it, for all of the storms. Because without them, my soul would not be growing and it would not be expanding. And the one thing our dad said all the time was, you come here for two things, to grow and to expand. Don't fence me in. And that's why he would always then sing, don't fence me in. Um, (laughs) Because he loved that song, but it's so true. The soul just wants to grow and expand. And it does not do those two things by staying the same. Yeah. And just to to give my two cents on answering your question and expand on something Serena said, um, you know, I grew up hearing the phrase, we all probably did. It's from the Tao Te Ching. It's such a popular saying, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. And um, I heard it a million times. It never resonated with me until I went through the experience of becoming pregnant with my son. I have a two-year-old and and I'm, I am pregnant again, yes. And um, when I found out I was pregnant the first time, I, you know, I was 28, I think, 28 or 29. I was married. I was in a position to have a baby. It was okay. But I, if I'm being honest, I felt really afraid and a little bit devastated for the life that I felt like was leaving me because I was pregnant and going to become a mother. And I, in my mind, I thought my life is number one over. And as, as I've known it, um, I'm, I can't have friends anymore. I can't social, I can't have a social life. I also thought I could never have a career, but it was just uh, this, these ideas that I was buying into that none of which are true. And I've proven that to myself now since, but at the time, so I went through my pregnancy with my first son believing these things and, and try and catching myself at times and trying to shift, but not always being able to. And, uh, then he was born and he's the love of my life and I'm so happy and I have a career and I have so many friends and, and it's, and it wasn't at all what I thought that my life was going to become and none of it's true. Um, but I remember hearing that phrase again, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. And it resonated with me for the first time because I thought, Staying young and single and without kids, that is not the way to happiness. But I believed that it was, you know, and and being a mother also is not the way to happiness. There is no way to happiness. I bring the happiness to my life. I bring the happiness to being a mother. And then it's a happy job, you know, and I bring the happiness to every purpose that I find myself fulfilling each day. And they're all different. And I think that we, that's another thing that I think that um, you grow up thinking you have to find your purpose. But one thing that I've been realizing that, and that I like to say is that there isn't one purpose. I don't think any of us are going to find one purpose in life. I mean, if you live a a long life, you go from being a child to an elderly person, you're going to have many different purposes throughout, throughout that time. And you can have many different purposes in one day. I can hear my son out there crying right now. My purpose is this. And then when we wrap up, that's going to be my purpose. And they're both wonderful and important. And I bring the happiness to both of those roles in my life. And so, that, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but something. Yeah, yes. yeah, I think it's the same thing as the idea that 
in order to have peace in your life, in order to have anything in your life, you have to go within to find it. And um, that was something that our dad used to say all the time to me. He would say, Serena, illness starts with I. Wellness starts with we. When you make your life about serving others and serving the highest part of yourself that is God, that is in every one of us, you're serving the collective. And that is where you'll find the miracles. And that's where everything will unfold for you. But when you're thinking about me, what's in it for me? How am I going to get something out of this? How is this going to make me look? All of those things are things that bring about more illness or more self-focus. And um, I don't know, that always stuck with me, like, because I would get sick all the time, but it probably was because I was totally obsessed with myself and not thinking about anybody else. <laughs> it's so true. And I've never heard it that way. Oh my gosh. It's like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's heal right there. Um, I interviewed Lynn McTaggart. I don't know if you've studied her work, but she is all about group healing and changing the field of energy and, and, you know, all of that high frequency energy then goes into the person needing healing, whether you're, you know, or she does these massive global meditation experiments where you measure the magnetic field. And when everybody's coming together to meditate at the same time, it actually raises the frequency of the field. But she, she said, she talked about working with this woman who was like, you know, I'm not healing. I'm not healing. This this group healing is not working for me, you know. And Lynn basically said, "You've got to take take your attention off yourself. You're too obsessed with you and your illness, and and start to serve other people. Um, mm-hmm. Start to participate in group healing where you're healing other people." So she started to do that, and then of course the byproduct was that she healed. So that's so yeah. And, and we had we the were rare of Saint Francis. Yeah. framed in our hallway as kids. And our dad used to say, this is not just a prayer. This is a technology for how to live your life. It doesn't say, dear God, I need some peace. My mother is driving me nuts. Can you just give me a little peace? It's dear God, let me be an instrument of thy peace. And he would say, this is the secret that you need to understand for the rest of your life. And if you live according to this technology, this prayer of St. Francis, you will always be on purpose. Because the idea is that let me become like what it is I am seeking and let me become it so that I can offer it to others. And the universe responds to that. It cannot help but give you what it is you are, you are becoming because you are in alignment. You are, you are in frequency with it. So if you want to attract anything in your life, he would say, no offense, but the secret didn't get it right completely. The secret really is you get in life what you are, not just what you want. So become it. If you want love, put love there and you will find it and you will be in harmony with it. If you want wealth, become a generous person. And he would always say to Sage and I, or to all of us kids, if you are not generous when you are poor, you will not be generous when you're rich and vice versa. Generosity is somebody's nature. It's, it's either who you and, are or it's right. not. And that the universe is generous with those who are generous because you are, you are attracting generosity through the virtue of being generous. You know, like Serena was saying, you, you don't ask for peace. You don't ask for money. You become peaceful and you bring more peace into your life. You become abundant. You think abundant thoughts and you bring more abundance into your life. You know, you align with what it is you want. You don't just ask for it. You ask for it. That's a good starting point for sure. Mm -hmm but then you become like it, you know? Yeah. And I, I love 
you know, plays on words and your names are both have double meaning, you know, Serena is <laughs> all about serenity, um, which you're finding through, you know, lots of difficult tests, as you'll find out in the book, you're finding that in an insular Tahiti, that, that peace within <laughs> that serenity within, regardless of circumstances out of your control and Sage, you know, your father always told you that you had profound teachings within you as well. Um, and you were going to follow somewhat in his footsteps, but something he said to you when you're younger resonated with me. He said, you're more concerned with being right than being kind. And, right. you know, and I think that's, yeah, he used to say that that's to me, so a me lot. too, you know, like I, I grew <laughs> yeah. up with a dad, we were just butt heads and I just wanted to justify everything yeah. and prove him wrong. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I was the youngest of eight kids. I was, so I was always proving myself and <laughs> arguing and prove, you know, proving that I was right. And he would always say that to me. And it's not until I've gotten older, really. And not until he has left that I've embraced that at least a little more, I think. I mean, I still like to be right sometimes, but <laughs> but it is more important to be kind. I mean, what do you get out of being right? You know, it's embrace kindness and everybody wins. Yeah. And so exactly. And you are blossoming into the sage. He knew you were. Um, and then I, you, I don't know if you've thought about this, but your, your father is in his next phase. He's communicating with you all the time. You guys are constantly, because of your strong desire and love for him to connect, you're constantly checking yourselves and up-leveling your frequency and applying his work and his teachings so that you can maintain that connection with him. And so right. I just wonder if, because his last name is Dyer and he's so about words and symbols and um, numbers and 1111. And have you thought about, or has there been any insight about is, is this next phase? He could be a greater teacher on the other side. You know, his the last name is Dyer. Maybe he's, a you know, is dying to become even a bigger teacher than he was in life. Have you thought about his name right. and the meaning? I, I heard him say actually one time that, um, Somebody told him one time that his name was a double negative, that it, to wane is to lessen. And, uh, you know, if something wanes, it, it is weakened it's or is lessened, yeah, made smaller like and dire. Like, wanes gets yeah, smaller. Yeah. He said that if somebody told him one time that his name was a double negative, like to lessen and to die. And um, he thought, well, don't two negatives make a positive? So I know that yeah. he would joke about that, but um, I actually do without a doubt feel that he is so happy where he is because he, more than anything else, he loved people. He really loved like the human connection. Like the, he just loved people. He loved children. He loved older people. He loved beautiful women. He loved people. He loved influencing <laughs> he loved stories, people. people's stories. stories. Yeah. Right. And now I think I, I've been told by a friend who's a medium, who's absolutely brought him through for us many times. And I know it to be true myself, that he is so happy because he can help so many more people now that he's not bound by his limited physical body. And, um, and that he's just one thought, one frequency away. And I feel that I have heard so many people that have messaged us on Facebook or Instagram saying crazy signs or synchronicities that they've had with him, dreams with him. And I feel that his soul is like, yeah, he's happier not being in the physical. Um, but I think we all are. I think every single one of us will right. be when we're there. No, I agree. He's just expanding and loving. And once once I was able to get past my grief and and choose the joy and choose sooner, I feel that wholeheartedly. I, when I feel him, it's always joy. It's always love. 
you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I, I completely agree that his, his, he is happy. He is well. Oh my gosh. And he's so funny. And as your dad, you know, yeah. you talk about some of the goofball dad jokes he says, and I just want to end on one of his jokes that I thought was so funny, you know, while he was treating his <laughs> leukemia, besides the energy work and the work with John of God, et cetera, um, he was doing coffee enemas every morning. <laughs> and so he t- this is so funny to me, but he was telling you guys, you guys are drinking this coffee thing all wrong. It's supposed to go in the other hole, you know? Yeah. And so he would say the best part of waking up is Folgers in your butt. And I, exactly. <laughs> I think that's the funniest. The funniest. Well, and he said he was going to start a, a coffee chain and call it Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks, B-U-T-T-S, you know? (laughs) So funny. Uh, Yeah, no, I think that he, I mean, anything that he could make into a joke, he would make it into a joke. And that was one of the best parts of being around him. He'd be in his bathroom doing his coffee enemas, yelling out, somebody come help me. I the, the, the tube came out. You got to come help me put my coffee. I'm like, and we're just like okay, I'm leaving. I'm out. This is so disgusting. Or he would come out with the enema kit no. afterwards, like trying to get it close to us. So gross. Uh, see, <laughs> so gross. Yeah. Even, yeah. even the ones, you know, he's, he was still one of us, one of us earthlings yeah. as enlightened oh, as sure. he was. So great. Well, <laughs> guys, this book, the knowing is such a gift because it kind of sums up it exemplifies your parents as just these ideas, like just wonderful way to parent. So (laughs) as a mother myself, it's filled with reminders of how to really empower your children and, and, you know, teach only through love and really give them a lot of freedom. Like they, you know, you guys received as, as children. And there's so many stories. I literally cried and got full body chills, like more than any other book I've read. Um, and it's just a beautiful summary of his teachings. So I encourage everybody to pick up this book, especially if you're a parent or one of, you know, Wayne Dyer's fans like myself, or, you know, if you've lost someone that you love, because it's, it's just filled with hope and and empowerment and and good reminders of your, your father's teachings. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. That was so nice to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Yeah. Get it. Thank you so much for having us on. That was an awesome conversation. I yeah. feel like we could have gone on forever, but I know, I know. we went there's, over already. So There's so much we could talk about, but I just, yeah. I appreciate you both for being vulnerable and, and sharing this gift with us. And um, I wish you the best of luck with everything. And especially with your birth of your second child. I hope it's um, much <laughs> more smooth you. than the first one. <laughs> Yes, me too. Thank you. Uh, All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. Oh, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. Follow us on Instagram for some behind the scenes fun and more inspiration at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gorris. Take care and be well.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.